For the rest of us, please turn your Bibles to Leviticus 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one, there should be one in front of you, in the chair in front of you, maybe beside to the next. And you can grab that and turn to page 91 if you would. And if you don't have a Bible or you have a friend that is looking for a Bible and they need one, please take that with you. It's a gift to you if you need one or know someone that is in need of a Bible. We're studying the book of Leviticus. And we're in chapter 19 as we walk through this morning. Before I read, I want to share a bit of a story of a man named Ernest Gordon. Some of you may have heard of Ernest Gordon. Maybe you've heard of him through a movie called To End All Wars. If any of you are Kiefer Sutherland fans, you might know this movie. I've never seen the movie, but I've read the book that the movie's based on. It's called To End All Wars, and it's a biography of Ernest Gordon. And it's a really cool, interesting story. It's tragic in a lot of ways, but it's very cool, and it's very interesting. Ernest Gordon was a prisoner of war in World War II. He was captured by the Japanese, and he was forced with other British soldiers. He was originally from Scotland, but he was in the British Army. He was forced to build the notorious Railroad of Death, which some of you may have heard of before, where nearly 16,000 soldiers lost their lives in doing this, in working for the Japanese. And if you do the math of World War II, lasting roughly five to six years, I think you work it out to about seven plus deaths per day um, over the course of the entire war. We know it wasn't maybe that long or maybe it lasted a bit longer, but certainly a lot of death around this railroad and hence the name Railroad of Death. And Ernest Gordon was forced to work and his fellow soldiers were forced to work in appalling conditions with very little food in these prisoner of war camps. And we know we've heard stories of what they are like, the brutality that is amongst them. And yet, by God's grace, Ernest survived. And so he tells his story in To End All Wars. But what's interesting about his story is the morale, not M-O-R-A-L, but M-O-R-A-L-E, the morale of the camp. And as we read, and as you read in his biography, the life of the camp was really transformed in, his, in the time that he had spent there. And it's very, very interesting to walk through it. Because he and all his others were first captured. When they were first captured, it was very rough. They were, the guys in the camp were selfish. I mean, your life is at stake, right? You're literally starving, so you're not going to share anything with anybody. So you're selfish. You're scared. You're scared for your life. You're hurting. A lot of physical pain, a lot of disease because of where they were. And it was a survival of the fittest motto. That was really the motto of the camp. You know, every man for themselves, survival of the fittest. You wouldn't be bothered to help anybody because your life is literally, you know, maybe about to end. And you may starve to death or be beaten to death. And so Ernest, in his story, he talks about two men that he met. Because he got to a very low point. He got a disease and it started to affect his legs and he couldn't walk at one point. And uh, he, was, he was in the medical area of the camp and he was ne right next to the part in the camp where they were bringing the dead bodies. And so he was just waiting for when is it my time to you know, be thrown on that pile of dead bodies. And he would watch as dead bodies were brought out of the camp and he was there waiting and, and waiting for help. And two men came alongside, one a Methodist background and one a Roman Catholic. And these two men helped nurse Ernest Gordon back to health. And eventually, by God's grace, he was able to walk 
and he was uh, free and, and healed from this disease that he had uh, after getting some help, but after these two guys really coming alongside of him and nursing him back to, to full health. And you can read all about it in his biography. And so by God's grace, he survived. But what was the interesting thing about Gordon is that he was so impressed by the testimony of these men who came alongside him, you know, no reason to do that in an area of camp where you wouldn't want to be, where, where, all, the, where all death is, and these two men came alongside and they helped him. Why do that? And so he was so interested in, in these two people, that, these two men, that he began asking questions as he was lying on his, on his bed as they were helping him with his legs. He began asking these questions to them, and you can read about them in his story. And he became interested so much to the point where he asked for a Bible or parts of it. As you know, in a, in a prisoner's camp, you, can't, you don't just have Bibles lying around. And so he would be asking around for any parts of it that he could get his hands on to read. And he would start and he would read God's Word. And he would spend time doing that. And then what he ended up doing was he ended up taking the things that he had received, the blessings from these two men, and he ended up multiplying that to other men in the camp. So he started living out this kindness, this caring. And as he was doing that, he was also growing in his understanding of God and His Word. And what is so interesting about his whole story is that you get to the end of it, and the morale in the camp goes from very negative to we're all just here to die and we're all just doing our time until we, until we do, to, to life and hope. And they started making instruments out of whatever they could find, and they would, they would get together, they would read God's Word, they would have church services, they would spend time together, they would put on concerts, they would just enjoy life together in the middle of a prison camp. And you can imagine, that just as you're reading it, you have to double-check and say, wait a minute, these guys are, I mean, they're not just in the jungle, they're in a prison camp. They're building a railroad where they are being beaten and tortured and asked to do these horrific things, and yet this is their life back at camp. And you almost, you almost can't believe it. And the morale in the camp was certainly boosted because everybody started sharing their food, started caring for each other, started taking care of each other and helping each other and sharing the things that they had. And the gospel really started to make an impact on the morale of the camp. And it's an incredible story to see the transformation that can happen when people take seriously holy living and living the way that God and His character have been revealed to us in Scripture. And that's really what we see, I think, as we read Ernest Gordon's story. Living according to God's Word and honoring Him and His character through our lives. And so this morning, our theme is certainly holy living. There's been a lot of this word holiness thrown around in Leviticus. And this chapter really is the defining chapter in a, in a section 18 to 20 of what it meant for the nation of Israel to actually live holy. What did it mean for them to, to look like a holy nation? And so would you follow along with me as we read Leviticus 19, verse 1 through it. I'll read the whole of our section this morning. On page 91 in your pew Bible. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Verse 5, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it 
or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. It is eaten, if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. This is the word of the Lord. Holy living. We see that command certainly in verse 2. There are certain elements of holy living that I want to walk through this morning because this chapter really is the holiness code for the nation of Israel. And as you, as we read through that, you certainly heard in those first four verses something that sounded a lot like the Ten Commandments. And as we read through the rest of the chapter and as Scott preaches next week, we will get more of the Ten Commandments that come through in this chapter in Leviticus. But holy living is really about living out the moral character of God. That's what holy living is. And so the first thing we see as we read in verse 2 is that holy living was meant to be lived out in community. In verse 2. It was to be lived out in community. What is God, who does God speak to? He speaks through Moses and the Scriptures say to the people of Israel. Plural. To all the people of Israel. Not to just the priests or just the spiritual leaders of Israel. Israel, but all the people. And so holy living is meant to be lived out in community. And Pastor Jeff did a great job sharing with us on community in Leviticus 17 just a few weeks ago. We learned a lot about community. Certainly one of the standouts is that community keeps us from drifting away from the Lord and from drifting away from obedience certainly to His Word and what He's called us to in holy living. And so community is the way that God designed His people to flourish, to grow, to live. We need each other. And I know most guys say, I don't need anybody. I can do everything. But we need each other. Do you, do you truly feel that towards somebody, towards anybody? Do you, need, do you feel that need for other people to encourage you, to build you up, to speak into you, into your lives? And we, we know this more than ever, certainly because of the effects of COVID and isolation and being away from people. We certainly know these, this feeling well. But community is where God's holiness is lived out, where we live out the fruits of the Spirit, like love and joy and peace, and on and on they go. And the one another's of Scripture, submitting to each other, loving each other, caring for each other, praying for each other. You can't do that outside of community. Yes, you have family that you could pray for, certainly, but you can't do that outside of community. You can't live the one another's out outside of being around other people. And so we need each other. And holy living was meant to be lived out in community. But there's also in verse 2 this implied accountability. Since the whole congregation was being asked and, and commanded and encouraged to live holy, there's this implied accountability that I'm telling you all, and now you all can keep each other accountable to the things that God has said and commanded, certainly here in Leviticus. And so this is one of the reasons why community is such a good thing. And this is why God designed it this way. Now most of you will say, well, maybe not most of you, maybe you guys like accountability. Anybody like accountability? <laughs> As I was studying this, I was like, who likes accountability? Nobody likes to be told... Yeah, Tom's our only one. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> who, 
Who, who likes to be told by somebody else who is a sinner who doesn't have their life, you know, perfect, right? And who isn't living obediently in every other way. Who likes to be told by somebody who has imperfections that they have imperfections? That's hard to take, right? That can be very difficult and very challenging. And so we don't like accountability. We certainly balk at accountability. And we know that because because that has been largely the church culture in North America. I mean, people, they do their own thing, and maybe it's this individualism uh, or certainly parts of it, but we don't go to people and say, you know, I'm wrestling with this. Would you keep me accountable in this area of my life? And that doesn't mean we just go and tell everybody our dirty laundry. Certainly not. We use wisdom there. But we don't like having people do that. And that can be challenging and difficult because it invites them in to see more of our weaknesses, more of our failings, and it's hard. And it reveals to us our pride. And yet, it's implied here when God speaks to His people, keep each other accountable to these things that I'm speaking to you. And so we, we see holy living in, in that implied accountability. There's this opportunity to come alongside of each other. And the reality is, if you're trusting in your own heart, you are leading yourself astray more than likely because the Bible does speak of how deceptive the heart is. And so for us to think that we can see our own weaknesses, correct those weaknesses without the help of everybody or anybody else, rather, uh, someone that's godly that can come alongside of us in community in the church, then we're deceiving ourselves and we're walking down a path that is certainly not going to lead to more fruit. We'll try harder, but it might not work. The third thing we see is that holy living is lived out in one's personal life. And again, in verse 2, holy living was meant to be lived out in your personal life, in the, in the nation of Israel, in their personal lives, through, through fearing God, through revering God, for having this awe of God and who He was. That was to change that individual person. And so it really starts, holy living really starts with us. It doesn't start with us going out and telling everybody else it starts with us experiencing God's grace and His mercy and seeing Him and who His character is revealed in Scripture and then living that out. And as we behold God in His character, we begin to look more like Him. We desire to be like Him. We desire to display His character to the world, to, to the people around us, and our personal lives are affected by that. And certainly then it spills out into our family life, our work life, and everywhere else that the Lord leads and guides us through in our lives. And the final thing we see in this element of holy living is that holy living is God's will for you as it was for the nation of Israel in this chapter in Leviticus. And certainly throughout all of Scripture we see this. What does God say in verse 2? You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This isn't just a command of God. This is God's desire, His will for the nation of Israel, for their lives. And what does Exodus 19 say? We've already come to that and repeated that, I think, as we've walked through Leviticus. But it speaks of the nation of Israel as they go into Mount Sinai, and it says, You shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was why God chose Israel, was to be a holy nation, to be a kingdom of priests. And it's no surprise then that when we come to the New Testament, we see the same command 
repeated or the same desire. And Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, this directly comes from Leviticus here, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter repeats the same refrain that God speaks in Leviticus 19. God's will for His people has always been that they would be holy, that they would live holy, and live holy lives, that they would be like God. And so that is His primary call for your life. It's not, does God want me to do this, 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 or this? Those things don't matter. Farmer, you know, accountant, teacher, they do matter because they're opportunities to, to use certainly the gifts God's given you. But what does God want in all of those things? He wants you to live a holy life. He wants you to live His character out in whatever sphere of influence He gives to you. That's God's will for you. A life of holiness that imitates His character, His justice, His integrity, His, his love, His grace, His patience, His mercy. And so holiness is not just avoiding everything that's bad, but it's actually practicing righteousness. It's putting on the things of God, the character of God as revealed in His Word. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, where have I not been living out God's character the way that God wills for me to do? Where have I not been living out God's character? Are there things in my life that have not been true to God and His character? And then as we walk through, we see the foundation for holy living in the second half of Leviticus 19, verse 2. God has this command, but it's rooted in and there's a foundation to this command. It just doesn't come out and say, go and do this. There's actually some grounding for it as we have talked about as we've walked through Leviticus and the commands of God. There's a foundation. And before God calls them to be holy, He grounds it in something. Holiness is not something that they just come up with. And so first thing we see in verse 2b is that God is holy. He says it Himself. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And it reminds us of the picture in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah sees this vision of the Lord sitting on His throne. And what are the angels saying before God? Holy, holy, holy. And we just sang in that last song, holy are you, Lord. Holy is God. Holy is His name. He has no rival, no equal. He is otherworldly. Psalm 99 verse 9 says this, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. We've sung about that this morning. And what does His holiness mean? It means that He is morally perfect. It means that He is unique. He's rare. He's like a rare find. God is a rare find. You're not going to find another God like God. Like the God that we serve. There's only one. And, God, and His holiness really is His most distinct characteristic. It was set, it's what sets Him apart the most of anything. And earlier in Leviticus, holiness was referred to in objects or in being set apart for a special purpose as the priests were. But when we come to holiness in 18 through 20, we're really what, what we're getting at is moral holiness. His moral purity. Being set apart in our morality. And through the character of God. And so the character of God really is behind all of His commands. And certainly this command to be holy. What comes before that is that God's character. That's where we see it and we behold it. And so God's saying, be different from those around you. That's what 
he certainly means. Be exhibiting the holiness of God through your conduct. And Christian, that really is what we've been called to. We are a witness to the unbelieving world. If you are a believer and if you bear the name of Christ, you have those, that opportunity to show the world who God really is, what He really is like. And, and we have experience after experience of people who have failed to do this. And we know that that, that shouldn't come as a surprise to us. I know we often are so shocked to hear of you know, this pastor or this church member who, who has this sin and who does this and, and is this kind of way, and yet we know that we have indwelling sin, and as long as we live on earth, there is going to be sin. And that means that there are believers that you're going to fellowship in community with that are going to sin against you. And you can't be surprised by that because you're going to do the same thing to somebody else. right? And yet we still find ourselves surprised by those things. But we have failed at times to display God's character to the world. Certainly, each of us individually. And that's where we come to God and we confess that to God and we ask for Him to forgive us for that and we turn and repent of it and turn to living for Him and continuing to practice His character. Because God forgives us for those things. So God is holy and He grounds His command to be holy in the fact that He is holy. And then what does he say in verse 2b? He also says that he is Lord. We see this phrase, I am the Lord. And in Leviticus 19, it comes out 16 times. It's the most concentrated phrase you're going to see this, where you're going to see this phrase, I am the Lord. And Pastor Jeff did a really good job last week of describing it. So I'd say just go there and, and watch that section of the sermon. Um, but if I could like just sum it up really quickly and, and kind of cap it. God being Lord of your life means that God is the authority. And He has that title because He created you and because He controls everything. But He has that authority. So that means you're not the authority of your own life. So for God to be Lord, it means He has authority. And the word that was, is used for God in this chapter is Yahweh, as Jeff shared, and that's His personal name. And the picture that we don't want to walk away with in reading, be holy because I am holy, is is that God is standing there with a hammer ready to hammer us if we don't live up to His holiness. That's not the picture we want here. We want this picture of a father coming and pleading out of love and care and compassion for his son. Live holy. Be holy like me. Because your father is. There's this posture of love. And so we don't want to get the tone wrong where God is standing over us saying, I'm the Lord your God, obey me but rather, you know, I am holy. Be holy like me. God knows what's best for us because He created us. Thus, every statement about the moral nature of God in the Bible carries the implied demand that the believer exhibit the same quality in daily living. God's call to holy living is founded and grounded in God Himself who sent His Son to die for you and for me because we can't do that perfectly, because we cannot live perfectly, because we cannot live out His call to holy living perfectly. Jesus died the death that you should have died, that I should have died, because He loved us, to justify us before God. And so our last point here as we walk through the rest of the, the remaining verses in Leviticus 19 is that holy living affects our worship of God. It affects the way that we worship God. 
And so we see what the commands, we see this command to holy living and in the, in the following verses and even the rest of 19, we're going to see what did that actually look like to, to live holy to God. And so three of the Ten Commandments are brought out here and there will be more as we walk through next week. But the question that we come to as we read this is, do I have to obey the Ten Commandments? Do I have to obey these commands now? And certainly we know that God loves us and he already loves us and he sent Jesus Christ to die for us. If we place our faith in him, then no, amount, no ability that you have to obey these commands is going to change that love for you. Amen to that. God's going to love you no matter what. If you fail to live a holy life, he's going to love you. It's not going to change. So you're not going to be able to obey these commands and say, look at me. God loves me more. Or look at how spiritually mature I am because I obey God's word or because I obey God's commands. God's not going to love you anymore. And yet, God's desire for us is still that we obey Him and His Word and His character. And certainly, as you read through God's laws, His character comes out in all of the laws that He's written to us. And certainly in the Ten Commandments, it's, it's His character coming out through His commands to His people. We know the greatest commandment, as Jesus said in Matthew 22, 22 is to love God and to love others, Right? And then Romans 13, Paul says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. These are some of the ten. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul saw the law, those commandments, he saw them as a framework for loving God and loving your neighbor which are the two commands that Jesus said are the greatest. And so in loving your neighbor, you're obeying these commands. But we don't obey these commands to get anything out of obeying the commands. We don't do it to make God happy. We don't do it to be loved by God. If we're doing it for that reason, we're doing it for the wrong reason. We're doing it because as Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. When we obey God, we get more of God. We see him for who he is. The reward is God. The reward for holy living is God himself. Understanding him more, growing in our love for him more, it's God. It's not anything for us. And so this is why I think we need to cover this before we come into these commands and read these commands and feel like we need to just do better at obeying these commands. And so what we see here in holy living and how it affects our worship firstly is that we are to honor our parents. This word revere, to prize, to value our parents. Normally, that is used of God. Revere, fear, fear the Lord. Where's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. But here, parents are worthy of this title of being feared and revered. God thinks parents are important. Parents are important. Hear that, moms and dads. You are important in the lives of your kids especially in a culture where it really doesn't matter what mom and dad think. It really does. Mom and dad, you play a special role and you're worthy of respect because you are the primary teachers of God and His Word and His truth to your kids. We know that the world is not going to do that. So that's why God gave us parents to be an example of His character and His authority in our lives. And to teach us what God's Word says. 
Deuteronomy 6 reads this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. That's the job of a mother and a father. And that's why they ought to be respected and revealed, revered. And the job of the child is to certainly honor them and respect the role that God has given them. We honor our parents by listening and heeding to God's Word, by submitting to what they have, their authority over us that God has placed before us. In both our words and our actions, we obey and honor our parents. And as you grow into a mature child, certainly that authority will go well with you. And there's other ways to honor our parents by caring for them and by honoring and respecting them. But honoring your father and mother does not mean imitating the ungodly examples that you've been given. It doesn't mean imitating the ungodly examples where they've failed to display God's character to you. But it does mean that in spite of those things that you still honor and respect your parents and the parents that God has given you. And so we see holy living affects how we relate to our parents and how we worship God. And then we see the second thing in verse 3. We see the observance of the Sabbath. And in observing the Sabbath, what does he say? You shall keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. Sabbath was a special sign of the covenant that God had with the nation of Israel. We read about that in Exodus 31. But the Sabbath is also rooted in Genesis chapter 2. When God created all of the world, what did He do on the seventh day? He rested. He took a break from creation. And Paul gets in this argument in Romans 14, which we would have preached on last year, if you remember. There's this argument of, the, there's these two guys, and one is saying, well, every day is holy to the Lord, and this other one is saying, well, yes, but this day specifically is holy to the Lord, like more than those days. And so they're saying, well, who's right? Or is every day holy to the Lord, or is there one day that is holy to the Lord? And you can read in Romans 14 what Paul says but he says that each man is right in what he's doing if he's doing it for the Lord and to honor God. And so do we have to obey this Sabbath command specifically to, uh, to break on the Sabbath and not do anything? Not necessarily, but the reality is that according to Genesis 2 and what Romans says in 14, that we need to rest. We need to take time to rest and to relax. We need a day out of the week to say, Lord, I love you. I revere you. I fear you. I'm in awe of you. I thank you for what you've done. I want to honor you today. And and maybe in a special way than what I would in in any other day. Maybe. But we can also certainly do that every day. And this is hard in a society where everything is go, 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 go. And you don't stop. And if you're not working hard, you're not working. And if you're not, uh, people look down on you maybe. And so we fill our time with work and production and all kinds of things. And a quote that I found in a commentary as I was studying this week, it says, A society that is addicted to commercial activity never ceases from the endless task of creating wealth is an unhealthy one. Its riches in material terms will only be matched by its poverty in spiritual terms. Let's take that to the individual level. Me running the rat the rat wheel of society and accumulating things and trying to get ahead and and trying to do all this stuff, trying to earn wealth, trying to 
earned savings. None of those things are bad necessarily in and of themselves. But there does come a point where those things can consume and become a point where we have this unmatched wealth and yet spiritually we are struggling. And I think that's what we're being warned against in, in observing the Sabbath, certainly here and in the commentary quote as we read there. If we're honest, there are times where we experience this spiritual poverty, where we need a time to rest. Because coming to Sunday mornings is not enough. Just coming and hearing God's Word and singing with fellow believers, that's not enough. You need more than that. You need to be in God's Word. You need to be learning and growing in His, in His Word every day. You need to spend time every day, lest you become spiritually bankrupt. And that's why God created rest. And we use the disciplines of grace in those things. And then the third thing that we see is this, to turn from idolatry and graven images. And again, we read that, we may read that and go, that sounds like a very old, archaic command. And it is so relevant for us today. The command is twofold. Turn from idolatry and don't worship graven images. What would have been in mind is the golden calf when Aaron uh, led and allowed the nation of Israel to make a golden calf to worship God when Moses was gone, right? Getting the Ten Commandments from the Lord and they wanted uh, a God, a physical representation of God. And what does Moses do when he comes down? He destroys that physical representation. There is no physical representation of God that we serve, the God that we serve. There isn't any. And yet they try, and certainly in other religions, they try to do that. And the command is to turn and away from those and to not worship those physical objects. But the word idol is very close to the word Elohim, which is one of our words for and names for God, contrasting the deception of idols. The deception. They look very much like God, or they seem like they could be, but they're not. Idols are false gods that promise far more than they can deliver. They don't deliver on their promises. And if you read the Old Testament I mean, the mockery of, of nations that, that worship these idols that are made of stone and brick, and, and you just read it in the prophets and how they're, they're going to be destroyed because they're all made by man, and there's just they're nothing. There's nothing to them. They promise this false hope that they don't deliver on. And so idols, they really replace God. They're persons or things that replace God. James 4 says this, a relevant verse for us today. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war with you. Why is there conflict? Because your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So often our conflicts can be traced back to our own sinful fleshly desires. Sin is what we do when we're looking to something else other than God to satisfy us. And that's what idols promise to do. And then they don't deliver. And so we ask God, change my kids, change my spouse, change this person in my life that is difficult as if what I want is what's best for me and everybody else around me, right? And we ask God thinking, well, I mean, God says that 
this person ought to be a patient person, and so I'm going to pray that this person would be changed and different and better for me. And it, and it becomes that we're looking to these people to be different in order to satisfy us. And we're worshiping ourselves and what we think should be, what we think people should be like, what we think we need, what we want, what we think is most important. And the reality is that life is not about us, right? Life is not about you and I. And so why is idolatry so important to holy living? It's because it flies in the face of God. We read Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can't love God and you can't love idols at the same time. You can't worship yourself and everything that you want and everything that you think the the world should be and the way life should go. You can't run after that and then still serve God. That's not the way it works. And so idolatry is when our hearts and our affections are captured and controlled by something other than God. Right? When your spouse disappoints you and you thought they should have been doing this and they weren't and you had all this hope that they were going to and they didn't deliver on that, that spouse becomes an idol at least at that particular time in your life because you were hoping that they were going to deliver and they didn't. God's the only one that can do that, that can satisfy us perfectly. Our kids... Right? You hoped that they were going to live this way or do this or deliver on that, and they didn't. Right? And now look at me. I've got you know, kids that are this or doing this or doing that, and I'm all disappointed, and everybody's, you know, we, we think people all of a sudden look negatively at us. What are we doing? We're worshiping the idol of our kids. We're thinking that their perfection is going to somehow make everybody else think I'm a great person or whatever it is. And so we worship the idol of kids. What can be an idol in your life? Literally anything could be an idol. You could place anything above God. You could find affection and hope and try to find satisfaction in anything other than God. Work, popularity, social media. Popularity is more of a high school term, but it applies to adults. (laughs) Relevance, children, spouse, friends. Even good things can be idols when we love them more than God. So holy living requires that we turn from idols and we worship God and God alone. What are idols in our lives that we could and should turn from where we're, we're finding that we're hoping and trying to find satisfaction in these things and affection for these things that maybe are going to not deliver where God alone can deliver? And then in the 5 through 8, we see the final thing, worship according to God's instruction, to His instruction. The fellowship offering is what's brought up in these few verses, and we've talked about this in the past in Leviticus, but the whole offering was to be consumed in the first or the second day. And if you get to the third day, you were, just to, you were to burn it with fire and consume it. You weren't to eat of it on the third day. And the idea behind that was being that you would profane that thing and you would be disobedient to the Lord if you were to eat on the third day. So you were taking something that God said is holy and you're now profaning it and making it unholy, making it regular, common, as we've talked about. And the result was a severe penalty as we read. But holy living means worshiping God according to the way that God has prescribed for, for us. Worshiping God and treating the things that God says are holy as holy and not as common, which we see certainly again and again in our culture the culture that takes things that God says is holy and important and valuable and they diminish it down to nothing. Right? And we can be guilty of being a part of that certainly in our own lives. And I think that's what 
we're getting at when we read that fellowship offering and seeing that holy living affects our worship of God and the way that we worship the Lord. And so as we close this morning, our conclusion is that we hope and we pray that we will be people that are passionate about the holiness of God, His moral character specifically, His moral character, that we would desire to be more and more like Him, that we would know Him, and we know that we're not going to reach completion in this until eternity when God comes back for us. We know there's going to be imperfection along the way. And so we're not saying just go out and try harder, as Jeff has already so greatly explained after the last two sermons that he's preached. We're not saying go out and just try harder, try and be better, try and do these more, obey these commandments and just do it and pull up, you know, pull up your pants and get to work. I don't know the analogy there. Sorry. (laughs) It lost me or I lost it. But here's the reality, guys. You can't do this apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. So you can try, but you can't do it apart from God and His Spirit working inside of you in your heart and in your, and in your life. And how does that happen other than coming to God with His people and worshiping together, spending time with Him in His Word and praying as you, as you uh, behold Him in your personal devotions? That stuff only happens by, by seeking after God. And so we won't try harder to live holy. It won't work. Not unless we're doing it in the strength that God provides. And so we have been freed from the power of sin to engage in this work, to engage imperfectly in the sanctifying work that God through His Spirit is going to do in your life. And God has so much grace for us in that to forgive us and to love us in spite of that, and yet He frees us to be able to do it. So we can get behind God in His work that He wants to do in our lives by living holy, by not just sitting around waiting for God to change us because it's not going to happen. You have to contribute and be a part of it. And so we balance those two things, knowing that God is not going to love you more because you obey His commands more. All of life is the stage in which God's holiness is to be lived out. And holy living is a display of all of God's character. His love, His justice, His gentleness, His grace, His mercy, His humility. May you be empowered to do that. Let us close in prayer this morning. Father God, we thank You for this opportunity to come together and to gather and to sing of Your holiness and Your greatness, God. And we know that we serve a God who is rare, who is unique, who there is nobody like in His power, and His knowledge, in His wisdom, in His love, and in Your grace. And God, we are so grateful for all of those things. And I just pray, Lord, that we would see Your character as we behold You and as we grow together, as we grow in community, as we grow personally in our, in our devotion towards You and in our time spent in Your Word, that You would show us Your character. And God, that You would help us in a world that is so so dark compared to who you are and so against everything that you are. They're against life. They're against love, true love. They're against grace and mercy, God, and all of these things. And yet, Lord, there are opportunities around every corner for us in every part of the globe and, this, and even this city and this country to shed the light of the gospel and the truth of the gospel and your character to the world. And we pray that you would help us to show the world that there is a better way to live and that way is to live according to you and the way that you have designed it and created it to be. And so God, just help us to display that. Give us grace when we fail. 
Give us patience when we see others failing around us that are hurting us and, and, and not living up to your character. We just pray for help and grace in those moments too, Lord. We thank you for your love for us and your grace, and we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.